0: I'm Aaron Armstrong.
1: I'm Pete Moran. And we love to watch. We love to watch is simply materialized color operating on the 49th vibration. You would make that same conclusion walking down the street or going to the store.
0: Well, there's a puppy in the parlor and a skillet on the stove and a smelly old blanket that a Navajo Whoa, There's chicken on the table, but you gotta say grace. There's always something cooking at Old Joe's
2: place.
0: Hey, Pete. Five. Hi. Love the twist that they're a weird color cult as opposed to the evangelical Christians that you think it's setting up.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, because this movie is so sincere and sweet. And then in the sidelines, there is something very, very dark happening with the uh, New Main Street Singers.
0: Well, the New Main, I mean, I, I alluded to this on an earlier podcast that this is a very uh, sweet Version of a gas mockumentary, with the exception of one group that everyone has a lot of disdain for, and I think rightfully so. So <laughs> it makes sense that they're also the the color cult. But, you know, by, by their nature, they're not, uh, I mean, they're not really producing something original. They are the uh, kitschy attempt to profit off uh, the art. But we'll get there. Where we left to watch? We're a movie podcast we pick a theme. We do movies over the course of the month around that theme, and if we remember, we compare and contrast. And holy cow, what a November! It feels like it flew by.
1: Yeah, yeah, it, it flew uh, right the folk out the window.
0: I couldn't believe. I mean, we we talk about this in the, sh- the shows. I could not believe that a glacier moved over San Diego a couple weeks ago in November. That was nuts. That was that was pretty wild
1: and impressive. Uh, You're able to keep recording. Really impressed with your ability to piece together um, a resonator and communicate with me um, from the ice dimension.
0: Oh, uh, I'm actually I I uh, froze. Uh, I'm, oh. I'm I'm recording these from the great beyond. Which P.S. Were you oh. visiting me in San Diego when this happened? <laughs> I. I didn't see you yeah I mean uh, if you think it's pleasure. cold in San Diego I recommend going to Minnesota no uh I, I did go to the afterlife it's real it's all blue snowballs insane oh my god uh they yeti. were trying to they were trying to send us a sign yeah yeti sponsors the afterlife you know uh, <laughs> everything's commercialized now uh but yeah we uh, won. one yeah yeti
1: blue snowball
0: hmm Is a Blue Snowball Yeti's cold-ass balls? I think that's what they're getting at. Yeah, like technically to be anatomically correct, you're supposed to buy two of these. (laughs) We haven't, but uh, that's that's why we got angry letters. Like, what are you doing to Sasquatch?
1: Unless it's some sort of Napoleon Bonaparte uh, Yeti.
0: Yeah, those, uh, you know, with the exception of Height, those two are identical. <laughs> Height, facial hair, but yeah, we're like I said, what we love to watch. It is our last, where week we of... love to squatch. <laughs> Shut it down. <laughs> <laughs> we can. I mean, this this podcast, let's be fair, would be more popular if it was about catching Sasquatch. So absolutely, absolutely. C- clearly, we have missed our calling. But instead, I hate to inform you. Instead of covering where's that Squatch hiding Um, we are covering uh, our our last entry in Be Our Guest month where we are covering the mockumentaries of Christopher Guest and even though we already ended or we already covered his actual for now ending of mockumentaries with mascots a scant two episodes ago uh, we are covering his um, spiritual conclusion (laughs) His uh yeah, where he probably would like uh, for his his to be remembered by if he uh, if he never makes another one uh and that is uh, a mighty wind. Uh his 2003 follow up to the very successful especially for him uh best in show uh and I think that's actually a really good place to start. So uh we've kind of talked through this month around how he gets from spinal tap in 82 to, uh, to waiting for government in, in, in 96. Uh, in that, you know, he directed another movie in between. He's on Saturday Night Live. He kind of returns to this after some other things didn't work out as well as uh, I would have to assume he hoped. Not necessarily as like a a retreat, but probably a little bit more of a safe area for him to to play in. Uh, Waiting for Guffman is a critical success, not a financial success. He then tries to make the big mainstream movie in Almost Heroes uh, a huge critical and commercial flop. He, in some ways, again, I don't mean this to uh, add a, a judgment perspective to it, but he kind of retreats back to, I'm, I'm going to make another mockumentary. He makes Best in Show, and that one becomes successful. It gets nominated at Golden Globes, Independent Spirit Awards. Uh, I, I, it does not have an Academy Award nomination. This movie we're going to talk about today did. Um and this is the first one that he's kind of making uh, directly following Best and Joe. It does come out three years later, but he is he is making a literal follow up to something that was successful and something that I think people were excited about I know I was I had discovered him at Best in Show went back and and discovered this is Spinal Tap realizing that that wasn't a uh, concert film of a real band that I'd never heard of but a mockumentary just you know went back and watched Waiting for Guffman and this is the one you know that came out I think my my second year in college that I was me and friends that I went to school with were kind of eagerly awaiting this one's uh, this one's release Uh, like I I think a a decent amount of especially comedy nerds or you know uh, film school nerds and stuff like that and I gotta tell you Peter I and most of my friends were pretty disappointed by it the first time I saw it.
1: <laughs> Same. I had I waited until uh, it came out on home video, but I was very excited uh, when this was coming out uh, because I was such a big fan of Best in Show. Um, and I remember renting this from Glo- Blockbuster, uh, like the day it came out, and uh, not really liking it, especially in the final act, uh, because the final act to me, especially at the time, I would have been 14. Mm-hmm. Uh, the final act is all just like, it was a musical style that I don't partic- I didn't particularly care for Now I have much more of an appreciation for the Musical history they're pulling from and like uh, The movie makes me cry At the end um, but this is definitely A movie that I, uh, you, I Couldn't trust my 14 year old opinion on I had to revisit at some point in my 20s
0: Well and I think part of it is just because Best in shows we talked about last week Is his funniest movie I, th- I think it's even funnier than this Spinal tap It is uh, it, it, it was like a, a wake up call for for me of like you could make a movie in this format and it could and and it could be this funny by being able to kind of shoot in this mockumentary uh style by the way a term that he hates we've been using it obviously like everyone does throughout the month uh he fucking hates it he does not think that uh he doesn't like that he's uh known for coining that genre he hates the phrase but as we've talked about he's a grumpy guy um but uh you know so You know, Best in Show really is something that is going for laughs. It's going for something that I think has a lot of uh, common recognition, even if you're not as obsessive about uh, your dogs and your pets as the Best in Show people – my my wife uh who is a, a huge part of uh the responsibility of why we have and have had three dogs the entire time we we've been together you know saw this movie and just recognized a lot of the obsessiveness or like the way that she would sometimes talk to the dogs and stuff like that and even though she's never like taking them out to to dog shows you know it's something that i think just has people recognize in a way that you know um this is Final Tap did for like people that loved heavy metal or were, you know in heavy metal bands, but not necessarily in the way that for most audiences Guffman uh, or or this movie ends up really resonating with. It is it is pulling from a very specific type of like Donovan, uh, Gordon Lightfoot type 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 folk rock, and then also uh, making it. Uh, like I think it's like one part Donovan, one part uh, uh sixty Sexy Me Street song. So it's it, like you know, there's that song where they all just sing about the chickens and stuff like that at the end. Where it felt like, okay, what is this? And you're right, the, the last act, and specifically two of the funniest characters in Best in Show, are almost exclusively. Not played for comedy. So there was parts of it that I liked and stuff that I thought that was really funny uh, that we'll talk about uh, later. But it just it seemed like a great idea about these kind of, you know, uh, sub 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 cult 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 musicians of the specific genre getting together. And it just didn't have the jokes. And it's only upon, I think, re-watching it without the uh, expectations of Best in Show weighing on it and starting to, like, really appreciating the central relationship at play in this movie that I started to uh, really come to love it in its own right. Not on the same level, I think, as the other three movies that we covered uh, this month – but something that i that i have told to many people who have said oh i didn't really like mighty wind that you know my follow up question is usually did you watch it when it, come, it came out have you watched it since then because there's actually a lot to love when it's not uh, when it's not being contrasted to one of the funniest movies ever made
1: Absolutely. It's it's a movie that also uh, has grown in my estimation uh, overall, yeah. because as I've gotten older, I've like expected um, movies to be more than just joke factories, um, because at the at the time I, I was more used to Best in Show, which like if Best and Show has any faults, it's that it sometimes uh, throws the characters under the bus um, for any joke. Um, for a laugh, um, which is something that I don't really want in in, in a sort of uh, faux documentary. Is that okay to say? Is Christopher Guest going to punch me in the nuts um, <laughs> I mean, I think documentary Christopher Guest would
0: punch you regardless. So
1: yeah, that's fine. You but just for talking. Right. Yeah, he's very quiet man. Um, but that sort of uh, faux documentary, even mockumentary um, format, um, I kind of it kind of needs to have. <clears throat> the balance of reality added to it um which with waiting for Guffman, a lot of that is like the pain and disappointment of the entertainment industry even as, as small as like a small town small town play uh with best in show it's it's you know a lot of it is just making fun of of those characters but it ends on sweet notes for a lot of those characters in this it very much is Christopher Guest going out on on a limb and uh, he 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 attempts to balance out the... Um, sincerity of the Mitch and Mickey story where like Catherine O'Hara and Eugene Levy, who are the main main sort of pairing in this movie, uh, just like in Best in Show, they their story is mostly just about the heartbreaking ramifications of, of uh, un, uh, you know, uh, what could have been in your life, what what the path not followed, um, those relationships that broke apart, you know, friend or or non-platonic sort of relationships that, you know, romantic or platonic relationships that fell apart because you, uh, your ego got in the way or you two just didn't communicate well. The turns that we make in life, sometimes without even realizing it and how uh, just with a little bit of time and a little bit of distance, there's a sort of beautiful pain that comes with that, that sort of reflection. And now I'm just old enough that i have like moments i have moments like that in my life like friendships that i i reflect on and i'm like i really i really fucked that up or relationships where i'm like i, I you know i i really you know we weren't me- we definitely weren't meant to be together but uh the way i think mitch and, and, and mickey maybe were but like um the, we i could have ended that better i could have done that better and yeah. that's something that at, at whatever 14 or whatever this movie came out 2005 2003 2003, okay, so I would have been 12. Yeah, I 12 or 13, I 100% did not have the sort of wherewithal.
0: I just wanted joke machines. Yeah, well, and I also think, I mean, I agree. So, I mean, I was 20 when this movie came came out. So, you know, definitely not at the point where you start reflecting, you know, uh, uh, on some of those, like, past relationships in the same way or stuff like that. But, like, yeah, I mean, Mitch and Mickey are so good because – they are not – it's not like a couple that couldn't have worked together, which I think we see a lot of times in movies like breakups. Like they, they you know, uh, they, they broke up for a reason. They're not together anymore, yada, yada, yada. You know, and a lot of times in movies and television shows and in your real life, what ends up happening is is that you, um, you kind of uh, remember the good times <laughs> – and you forget all the, the bad times and that that sometimes uh, clouds your judgment as you like pine for some lost love that effectively doesn't exist anymore. And I think this movie is interesting because it it doesn't like shy away that there were, you know, dark times and there was fights and stuff like that. But it, it is a movie about two people who kind of never, never fell out of love. And at the time where they both needed to or one of them or both or whatever it is, need to try a little bit harder or change something in the relationship, they weren't capable of it, and the the relationship understandably broke up. But you know, there's an alternate version of that where a little bit of different effort, a little bit of maturity in dealing with problems, a little bit of therapy or whatever else, and they could have you know copped over that that uh that that wall or whatever and continue to have a relationship work and and that's you know the portrayal of that is so interesting because it it, it's 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 like a love that was paused never got a chance to unpause and you're kind of watching them kind of reckon with that while also recognize that while their love was paused their lives uh their lives themselves weren't paused and they kind of went on.
1: Yeah. 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 And (laughs) the movie has a, a very dramatic sort of fascination with, with the way that we age. Um, The balance is probably off for people that love best in show or waiting for Guffman where, winning for guffman always best and joe winning for guffman both both always and spinal tap uh balance out those moments of sadness with an immediate massive joke right after right in the middle of it and in this like the new main street singers are funny but like uh the the folksman which is the harry Shearer, um uh, michael mckean and christopher guest band um There's some really funny jokes in there, like um, Christopher Guest is driving. But the jokes are sort of like this, like Christopher Guest is driving in downtown New York. They all haven't been there in a long time. And he's like, you're lost, aren't you? And he's like, uh, Christopher Guest is driving. He's like, no, I, you know, I I, I have a map, uh, you know, but it's, it's, you know, back at the hotel or whatever. And he was like, so were you just going to? like study it later academically <laughs> like, like the, the joke is like the joke is not like a uproarious like out uh, like a, a ridiculous thing for someone to say the jokes with the folksmen are probably just these old friends catching up and, and goofing around with each other like there's a few gags in there that are like more broad like the the movie that the joke that ends the movie in a very gross note is a transphobic joke that's like obviously um, obviously more broad but most of the jokes in that are just sort of like the the small little things that you and your friends would say to each other or like little things that you hear and overhear in a documentary between old old buddies they're like make you laugh but like they don't feel like
0: they're they're almost not yeah i i love it's a you know group that hasn't really like produced art together in you know 30 or 40 years or whatever and uh you know, they had a, a breakup based on, like, their success or, or flash in the pan waning. And I really love the way it's portrayed as, like, you know, they didn't have a breakup based on, like, a big fight or someone wanting to go solo. Like, they're, you know, their their band just had its run and it, it didn't, uh, you know, flame out. It fizzled out. But they were, you know, they worked together in close proximity for so long that, like, at first they're very excited to see each other reminiscing. And you can tell, like, the, the, dy- the like, annoyed, the, the annoyances and those, like, personality dynamics come back almost immediately. They love each other. It's kind of like, no matter how, uh, how long it's been around your siblings or something like that, like... Uh, it, you usually don't skip a beat in, like, again, those, like, oh, you're, you know, you're the sort of person who is, like, insistent on this song that is dumb or you're obsessed with our, like, you know, the the way they all have that conversation about, like, uh, their, their costumes or their, you know, that they would wear performing and both of them just seem very annoyed at Christopher Guest's character, like, insistence that these are. Uh, you know, that uh, these would be uh, retro costumes and they should look at this stuff. And they're like, well, it wasn't retro. (laughs) You know, we just wore that. Like, why don't we wear the thing we're known for? And they're like, well, you know, like it feels like petty annoyances um, that uh, that feels like very well lived in, which is also, you know, one of the very charming things about this movie that we haven't mentioned uh, that you probably know is that, yeah, it's it stars besides the Eugene Levy, Catherine O'Hara couple, the other, like really kind of main band that's getting back together is the Folksman is played by Christopher Guest, Harry Shear, and Michael McKean. It essentially, as a flip of their of their spinal tap, we we've mentioned in their uh in the previous episodes that um that uh McKean and Shear both like Contributed in some ways to Best in Show and Waiting for Guffman. And Waiting for Guffman, they wrote all the songs that are in the Red, White, and Blaine* musical. In uh, Best in Show, they have uh, parts. Michael McKean is one of the leads. Uh, Harry Shearer is the announcer at the dog show. And here they're really kind of reuniting as a band both literally and figuratively, both textually and metatextually to to kind of get together. So it also feels like those kind of like annoyances with each other feel very natural and lived in because these people in real life have been working together for 30 plus years at the time this movie comes out. And I'm sure that they all have, you know, again, those kind of almost sibling – uh, petty grievances <laughs> with each other, and I think that that manifests well as these characters. And that's actually let's let's pause there because that's actually how this movie started. So the Folksman first premiered on Saturday Night Live in 1984, uh, singing Old Joe's Place. I actually the clips on uh, at, at the terrible website that you can find every Saturday Night Live clip that apparently was made in a video player from 2006 that they never updated, but it's there. If you want to see it, uh, you have to refresh the page six or seven times, but yeah, it, you'll eventually did you, did you do the same thing? Did you, did you watch it as well?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, this is also, this was, um, change browsers. This, I've been going through this experience recently because, uh, for a little bit, it seemed like NBC was going to take old Conan seriously. Uh, yeah, and they didn't really no.
0: Uh, but yeah, so they, uh, so McKean was the host for the second time guest is on the cat is in the cast for his one season uh mckean had hosted earlier and uh they did spinal tap for the musical guest and they decided they didn't want to do tap again and so they invented this other band called the folksmen and kind of gave their backstory and sang uh their quote-unquote hit song old joe's place and then essentially those um characters mostly disappeared until the late 90s, early 2000s, where they started having uh, writing more songs for them and having the folksmen uh, open for some Spinal Tap tours that they were doing in the mid to late 90s. So you also have the situation as unlike like a Best in Show or a Waiting for Guffman or stuff like that, like you're kind of building at least part of a movie around this like – saturday night live sketch that is uh, metastasized into to something a little bit bigger but that you've been working through the characters for about 20 years it's like
1: blues brothers almost just less endorsed by lord <laughs>
0: michaels um
1: yeah i yeah, just I, like uh,
0: office space is i guess technically a saturday live inspired movie
1: yeah yeah that's that's pretty funny um I like I we you and I were talking about like doing an SNL inspired month or double month and I was like deeply uninspired by doing the spin-off movies but once you like broaden your horizons a little bit it can it can be we can put together something pretty fun um but uh I I the folksmen it's very interesting because, like, this is clearly a legitimate interest of them. This yeah. is not them poking fun at dog shows or whatever. This is not them p- poking fun at, like, community theater. This is them, a, a, a legitimate interest that, like, they per- – like you were saying, they perform as the Folksmen Live. They have done it for decades now. And uh, they, ro- they wrote songs for the movie. Even the new Main Street singer songs, like – are all pretty fun and you can feel a genuine sense of energy that you can only feel when
0: the perf- the performers are inspired in this sense. Um, well, yeah, because they were, they were performing. I mean, they make a joke about the new main street singers stealing, wandering, right? Like, which I want to talk about, about how that really paints them as villains. But like the joke also works metatextually because again, that was one of the songs that the folksmen, the, the real incarnation of the folksman that was had been around before this movie would do on their as part of their opening set for spinal tap
1: yeah yeah it's um and it's a great song it's a lovely song i, I great it's song. it's much per, like it's also you get their annoyance because you're like yeah like the the quote-unquote toothpaste commercial twee glossiness of the New Main Street singers, like, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun, like, whatever, but like um, Harry Shearer, Michael McKean, and Christopher Guest all perform together has a sort of magic. Um, and knowing <clears throat> that Christopher, uh, excuse me, knowing that Michael McKean though, and Annette O'Toole, his wife, wrote, wrote the a song the
0: in the movie. Yes. Uh, that was like their original one. Yeah. For this movie.
1: Yeah, knowing that those two wrote that um, long after I had seen the movie a few times and had come back around on it uh, makes it all the sweeter because as we discussed in the Winning for Guffman episode there is a bit of a a familial uh, attitude here a bit of a familial uh, tone to these movies and the idea that they're all sort of taking parts to like fill in where needed to sort of round out this movie as a movie and... They're, they're all kind of following their own interests and sometimes those interests are deeply aligned and, and what comes out of it is like a much warmer and sweeter movie as sort of the unofficial uh, end to this run of guest movies uh, is, it, adds a bit of a, it adds a bit of color or a bit of sweetness to this movie that you could not have possibly had in 2003 you know what beat
0: it at the Oscars, right? Um, it was the Lord of the Rings song, right? It's a song that plays over the end credits of Lord of the Rings, uh, called, I had to look it up, Into the West, uh, which is sung by Annie Lennox, so I I like Annie Lennox, there's no, no shame there. Uh, but it is one of those weird Oscar things where it's like, most people would maybe put Kiss at the End of the Rainbow on a mix CD, like, watching it 20 years later almost, it's so sweet, and you're like, wow, what a great song this should have won an oscar and then there's something just you know incredibly bizarre that ends up that ends up winning where you're like oh the end credit song for return of the king A yeah but that was where- the it was the Return on. of the King. It was the Return of the King year. Like, it won everything. Literally.
1: Yeah, everything. that was the year where Return of the King just swept on every category. And Oscar voters, for whatever reason, were united in saying, uh, if it says Return of the King on the fucking ballot, I'm putting I'm putting a mark.
0: Yeah, nominated for 11 Academy Awards, won 11. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Insane. clearly, the, the key is like. It's an inverse
1: American hustle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Did American Hustle of... lose every single one? Uh, there's <laughs> a few There's one.
0: a few of those movies that everyone rolls their eyes on that, like, you go back and it was nominated for 10 Oscars and, like, won a technical one. You're like, yeah, fuck you. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> Stupid. I don't even mind American Hustle, but agree. Uh, it's,
1: uh... Uh, but, but that's... Uh, you can't feel too bad because that's um, the rubber meeting the road, right? Like, so uh, Weinstein could uh, push forward stuff like uh, Shakespeare in Love. But ultimately, like... People had to like Shakespeare in love for it to win. Um, yeah. Like, and this movie, like, it's fine that it didn't win the, the Oscar or whatever. The, the the scene where they actually finally pull off the performance and, and they're back together um, makes me cry. I mean, it made me cry this time. Made me cry the past couple times I've watched this movie. Um the, the it's it's some of it is just hijacking history of this this sort of ragtag comedian family, um, you know, and some some of it is, you know, just Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara being friends for literally fucking decades. Um, and some of it is that gorgeous song. Um, it's it's a mathematical problem that's not really worth breaking into constituent parts.
0: Uh, I did look up what the record for most nominations with no wins are. Uh, it's tied with eleven. One I've never heard of. One will make you a little sad. <laughs> um, so one is called uh, 1977's. Uh, it says turning point, and I don't know if that's a typo on the, on the Guinness World. Must turning point. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It's on the Guinness site, uh, but it's it says Terming point uh, with an. Oh no! And then later on, it says turning point. So yes, <laughs> Guinness. Uh, I found a mistake on your website. Uh, it's called The Turning Point. It's starring Shirley McCain and Anne Background from 1977, the year of Star Wars and Annie Hall. Um, oh, that'll do it. But uh, I've never heard of the movie. Uh, and the other one is The Color Purple with 11 nominations and did not win an Oscar. Uh, not even a technical one, so... Do you want to? Uh, I think we I think we've set this movie up well enough, and also I forgot where we were. Do you want to start talking about the film, the motion picture, even a mighty wind? Absolutely. But
1: before we do, can you explain the title to me? Because it sounds like it's a fart joke, and then the and then the last line of the the song is them saying it's blowing you and me. So then
0: it's a blowjob joke. I mean, you know how like sometimes a blowjob can start with literal blowing. Yeah, I think it's one of those. Is that just someone, someone f- taking a very big breath? <laughs> 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 but they took too big of a breath, <laughs> or someone farting on your dick or something. <laughs> Is this
1: <laughs> like it's the joke? Sounds like a mighty wind. It sounds like it's, it's a, a fart joke. It's a fart joke, but it's reference. But it's also like it's referencing. There's a lot of. There's a lot of great folk songs from the '60s revival that reference like a wind is blowing. Bob Dylan, notably, that uh, <laughs> yeah, most of his songs were about wind. Yeah, and <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> but usually not about farts. Uh, usually not. I mean, I guess even Cat Stevens, right? Yeah, um, had the wind
1: and he was kind of part of like the 70s extension of the folk revival
0: right like yeah we're using uh, very good examples of folk music which are very these people are very much not they're like folks big mainstream these are the folk imprint labels <laughs>
1: Yes, yes, yes. These are not people that were trying to speak to the issues at the time, the Pete Seegers um, yeah. and, you know, 30 years earlier, the, the Woody Guthries or whatever. The, yeah. the, uh You know, the, the Bob Dylan of the 60s, uh, that that sort of era. Um, th- these are people that were like, people like kitschy Cracker Barrel shit.
0: Yeah. It's, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a fart joke. It, it, that's, that's why it's a blowjob joke. It does feel a little bit like – Especially like some of the folksman song stuff feels like they were channeling that Donovan song about Atlantis and you know the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. And like we're gonna tell a little like a uh, homey story, I guess. I guess a little ballad, a little ballad. I guess the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald is not a little homey story, <laughs> um, but. It's uh, yeah, well, unla- but I, I'm saying unlike the folksman songs. But although, I mean, the Folkman set up that song they don't sing that is like one of my favorite jokes in the movie where they're trying to vamp. And so they do that long intro after some, like, they make everyone go the geese go cluck or whatever. And then Harry Shearer is like, I want to talk about something a little more serious. The uh, Spanish-American War. <laughs> Many troops died So in 1930, in that war. yeah. Take us back to the 1930s. <laughs>
1: it was uh, funny watching that this time because the movie is a more sincere movie. And I was watching it this time. I was like, what else is he supposed to do? They didn't let Christopher Guest play his his so- his Spanish song. <laughs> well, I thought that's what he was setting up was that
0: Spanish song.
1: And his, Yeah. And the Spanish song was also like, that was a thing that like a lot of like, uh, you know, like Simon and Garfunkel had songs with verses in Spanish too, right? Like that was a thing.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, I thought that's what they were about to do. And then they were, and then Christopher Guest just passes the mic to Harry Shearer to talk about the Spanish Civil War to eat up about five
0: minutes. Oh, yeah. I said Spanish-American War. It's about Spanish Civil War. Yeah. But, yeah, I love that they're – like, they just bring everyone down and then they give the thing and they're like, all right, well, good night. <laughs> like, uh, it's such a – like, this movie does have a lot of very funny parts, which we will talk about right after the, this a word – From very explicitly not our sponsors. (laughs) Unless our sponsors are the folksmen. Never did no wandering. Never did no wandering. There's only two of us. Yeah, never did. We're like before Michael McKean joined the band. Never did no wandering after all.
2: Never did no wandering high. Never
0: did no wandering low.
2: What happens
0: in a mighty wind? Let me tell you, Peter. Zero farts. Um. Zero farts. There are no farts. <laughs> Zero farts. Um, what, what, I mean, can you hold on? Can you tell me really quick, like, if there had been a big old fart in this movie, what do you think would have been the best moment to have it? <laughs> well, there's no
1: one that we know of. That has incontinence problems. However, Surprising.
0: In a Christopher Guest movie that loves body part jokes.
1: I mean, the most obvious one is Fred Willard is presenting something and has a senior moment, right? And says, oh, hey, what happened? Oh, hey, what happened? In my ass. Um, That's the most obvious one is Fred Willard does it because he barely has control over his, his top hole, <laughs>
0: let alone his bottom hole. Let me tell you, it's a g- great option. I think... Ideally, if I'm saying what I would have preferred, like my ideal fart joke in this movie, little character off screen named Mister Ed, stumbles into into frame when they're singing the barnyard song about all the different animals. He <laughs> farts and then is like, oh, 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 "I'm Mister Ed. You're Horses all gonna say die. a lot of things." <laughs>
2: What do you ask me, you son of a bitch? <laughs> You're asking the audience from here to there to say nay? I'm right here, Mr. Ed, the character who's joined the movie. I find it rather reductive that you think the only thing a horse can say is nay. That's one of many words in my vocabulary. I can say it. It's not that I can't say it. I can say multi syllabatic words as long as you give me my peanut butter, which I desire so much. I'll say whatever the hell you want, Wilbur. Get a load of it. Th- Wilbur's been dead for a while because he's not—he's not powered by a Victor Varekand or whatever, like I am. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you can't give me worms. It's impossible. I'm so loaded up on super soldier medicine. <laughs> I got hooked up from Joe Rogan. <laughs> yeah, all these other people are dying. I'm getting stronger. <laughs> <laughs> i'm shitting parasites and
0: eating gold i knocked down eight buildings last week no one even noticed <laughs> you got out of the south everyone's just losing their fucking minds and i'm knocking down confederate statues well
2: you, you see a horse next to a knockdown building what are you gonna say the horse did it <laughs> who me oh hey what happened
0: oh hey what happened <laughs> that guy's a crack up uh, our biggest problem with the Mr. Ed bed is transitioning out of it <laughs> because it's uh, it's so forced getting into it that getting out of it is damn near impossible
1: yeah it's uh, this is, this is me getting out of it yeah Mr. Ed has more buildings to knock down and needs to leave the studio <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, exit left Mr. Ed.
1: Um, it's, it's crazy that, like, in the United States, we build buildings to withstand earthquakes. But for some reason, we? they cannot withstand an ever stronger uh, 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 Akira-like Mr. Ed. Uh, it's because of her
2: How do you say that fucking? I only see it Aver- in, on memes. Mictin.
0: I don't watch. Unfortunately, I don't watch uh, CNN where they probably are talking about it. I only read it online.
1: <laughs> you know, it's a who's a, a victim. Uh, you know, it's a good folk musician to transition us back. Who? Uh, Boney Verbeckton.
0: <laughs> uh yeah, he had a really rough breakup.
2: <laughs> <laughs> don't you take the horse, DeWemer? <laughs> he's gonna to, make me sad
1: <laughs> yeah he went to a barn up in Wisconsin <laughs> <laughs> just kind of worked through it someone
2: pass me the hay. <laughs> gotta craving for that oh. stuff <laughs>
0: oh man I, I COVID only makes Bonaventure Damn it. <laughs> it only makes him stronger is where Did I was going. Did you just learn how to speak Russian? <laughs> yeah, I, know. I, think, I think my brain literally just was like, you're done. This is your second <laughs> recording in two nights. You helped your daughter navigate virtual second grade all day today. You're done. There's enough words for you. Yeah. Words are tough. Uh, but they're not tough for
1: um, the many singers and songwriters in the film A Mighty Wind who not just, oh, don't just say the words. You know, they just say the words. They sing you know
0: what them. What do they do with the words? They sing them out. If they want to sing out. <laughs> Another example of a real folk musician. Um, So, it uh, yeah, so this guy named Irving Steinblum, who is a, a music producer who started a folk record label, dies. His children, played by Bob Balaban, uh, Deborah Theaker, who we've not talked about, who has basically been in like minor roles in all of these movies. Um, and uh, Elliot, played by Don Lake, who's also been in all these movies that we haven't really talked about. A uh, bit parts very funny in, in their moments that they get on screen. Uh, they are the children who have come back together. And Bob Balaban's uh, character is uh, kind of the one that's kind of stayed with. He works at the record label or works at his corporation that may manage the, the record label. And uh, he is like, we need to honor... Uh, my father, with uh, by by putting on a big show with all of the acts that he used to love so much when he was like a young younger producer bringing folk music to the masses. Um, it has a lot of funny uh, nods to the three siblings of this like rich super producer not getting along. Uh, Elliot especially is very funny in that he. Uh, Unlike Bob Balaban, who followed in his father's footsteps, uh, Elliot literally hated music. He said he escaped to North Dakota, which I appreciate, just to, just to get the sound out of his head. But they're all kind of coming back together to to do what at least their father would want. And that essentially involves getting three major bands back together that we've kind of already talked about a lot. Uh, the Folksman, which is the Harry Shear, Christopher Gass, Michael McKean act. They had a hit with uh, Old Joe's Place, uh, and then they kind of got transferred to a sub-label. The joke is that uh, eventually they started releasing their records without the, the center hole punched in. You had to do it yourself, and you could barely get the record to play. Uh, and eventually they disbanded um, you had, uh, you have the, the Main Street Singers, which, uh, was, was a, was a, uh, a night, a combination of two others, essentially a folk super group. Uh, th- that group had since disbanded, but they're essentially, uh, the new Main Street Singers with, uh, with one of, um. One of the uh, the members left a guy by the name of George who has brought together these other people like John Michael Hickens and Jane Lynch and some other younger people like Parker Posey. To uh, they are kind of popular again, playing on cruise ships, covering folk songs and other Main Street singer songs. They're managed by Fred Willard, which uh, who was a uh, quasi-former child star or sitcom star in the 70s. Um, he's more concerned with talking about that than promoting the band, but we'll talk about some of the, the great Fred Willard moments in this movie. And then you have the third one, the real heart of the movie, uh, which is, as we mentioned, Mitch and Mickey who um are sort of like I think the 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 closest like real world equivalent is like a folk Sonny and Cher um where they were romantically involved, they produced all this art and then eventually uh you know working together, uh creating music uh broke them apart and they they kind of went their separate ways with uh Mitch producing solo albums and um, and Mickey not essentially just uh, marrying someone uh, who uh, uh, creates medical catheters and stuff yeah. like that. Stop stop playing music essentially because she she talks about this that she was kind of always looking to to Mitch's lead. So uh, the the folksmen kind of get back together and, and again it's like how. Why do we look so old? Why do we look like our dads? They're really into it. Uh, the new Main Street singers are only interested in com- uh, fame and commercial uh, success, and they're playing already, so they're immediately um, into the idea. The question is, uh, will Mitch join? Because Mitch really kind of had a breakdown after uh, him and Mickey uh, uh, sp- uh, split up, making a bunch of a uh, couple albums. That are noted for cry for help uh, as, as cries for help that I actually think have like two of the two of the uh, funnier laughs in this movie, uh, especially early on before you understand really how serious it became uh, of him like digging his own grave for a solo album cover and like some of the songs also has a little bit of a of a Beatles breakup dynamic between John Lennon and McCartney, where uh, all of his songs are very clearly directed to uh, Mickey Um, on uh, they're not even thinly veiled or veiled they're just uh, saying like uh, you make me want to uh, die and stuff like that about 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 Mickey Um, uh, and uh, but Mitch does agree to it and he's, uh, Eugene Levy's kind of doing this accent that when I first started the movie again and I felt like this the first time I saw it in 2003, it's very much uh, almost like a did too many drugs accent I think I would describe it as um and it, it annoyed me then initially. It annoyed me this time even initially. It really grows on you very quickly. So, Peter, I know I texted you like, I think maybe I don't like the accent. But about ten minutes later, I was like, okay, it's kind of picking up steam. But it's definitely a different take. It's like the – and then we went to, uh, to the show. And, like, it, it's, like, long and slow and, and – And drawn out. And Mickey is very nervous. They haven't seen each other in 30 years. She's happy that Mitch agrees to do it. But what is that reunion going to like? She's married. um, You know, is is there a romantic spark? As we mentioned earlier, their relationship just kind of uh, there was uh, ended with almost like a pause based on a fight they were having without any of the we're not in love with each other or we couldn't potentially make this work. They just didn't have the toolkit to get through it in that moment. Uh, what's it going to be like in that reunion? But eventually they all agree to do the show. The last third is, uh, as you've heard from these Christopher Guest movies, are them putting on this show, uh, mostly without incident. They start with the the new Main Street singers. They go to the folksmen. Uh, it's pretty, for the most part, just sincere song playings with – uh, in between the songs, a little bit of drama around the new Main Street Singers opening with a cover of a Folksman tune who are going to be on next. Mickey potentially kind of wandering off a little bit. And the the really the crux of the show is that in the song that was the most popular by Mitch and Mickey, Kiss at the End of the Rainbow, there was this kiss uh, that they would do on stage – Um, at the end of the song or near the end of the song and the 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 question becomes are they going to do the kiss uh they do the kiss the show is a success Uh, also very uh different from a lot of christopher guest movies like essentially everything kind of works out with putting on the show like they you know pbs covers it live it's a full stadium everyone's excited they get the bands on everyone reacts very well to the performances and ends with a kiss. And you, um, you flash forward six months later to see where everyone is. Um, and essentially, I mean, you basically only need to know about the three bands. The new main street singers are, uh, are still, are still performing and into their colors cult, which we'll talk about later. Um, you have, uh, uh, Mitch and Mickey who both, uh, very like a uh, melancholy ending where they both are kind of saying that they're sorry that they led the other person on, but there was nothing there while clearly uh, Mickey has begun performing again, even if it's just at like trade shows for her uh, husband's medical equipment and Mitch notes that he's, he's never felt more productive in writing poetry and, um, uh, again, a very kind of melancholy ending. And then something that is not even alluded to, it ends on a serious bummer transphobic joke, with the exception of, I guess, Harry Shearer's character liking lotion, which, if that's supposed to connect to being trans, is duck. Yeah. I, don't even, I don't even
1: fucking it, know. But anyway, it's actually like it's actually something that if they had spent a little bit of time on making runway for it, they could have they could have landed at the end as like a happy ending thing. But yeah, also, but, but like in that shot, they make it very clear that like it's weird. Michael McKean is reacting or he's just like, yeah, it's my old friend. And then Christopher Guest gets the last line before they cut away to them performing together, um, which is uh, him being like. Yeah, like, yeah, it's different. Like, Christopher Guest is clearly yeah. bummed out about this, but he, he can't do anything about it. And then... And then they perform, and though Harry Shearer speaks with a feminine voice, he, he sings with his, like, Harry Shearer sort of baritone performing voice. And the joke is supposed to be that, isn't this trans woman still a man? Yeah, like... And that's a bummer for such it, a it, sweet it, movie. That
0: is the last. That's the last moment. It, it comes out of nowhere. It and again, it kind of goes to the. oh, yeah, That's right, Christopher Guest feel uh, finds heteronormative people hilarious. It's like it's it, it's even under even under the best of circumstances, which this and it's a very lazy joke. And I I think you're right though, Peter. The weird thing about it is that like if you cut out the Christopher Guest line and had some allusion to it or something that like. Michael McKean is very supportive. I think even the way that Harry Shear talks about it isn't humorous. Like, like I think I don't think he makes. <laughs> yeah, a, he doesn't. He doesn't so make. A, about it. He doesn't make a joke about it. He says that. Hey, you know, one thing I discovered is that I I love these two people. I want to spend the rest of my life making music with them and also realize that, you know, I want to spend that as, um, as a, as a blonde woman who I've always, who I've always been. And, you know, through this had the, like, you know, the words that he's using are not like dismissive or a joke. And actually like, he talks about it the way that most trans people would talk about it, which is like, I have not become this. I have always been this. And now I finally realize that this is, this is who I am. And I feel comfortable sharing it with these two people. And, like, again, if it wasn't through the lens of the baritone and Christopher Guest line and there was some sort of, like, we're not trying to – like, it, it was it was in a different place of the movie. You would almost think it's kind of sweet. But Christopher Guest is using it in the same way that he did his best in Showstinger, where he's trying to end on this, like, funny note of, like, the dog – Aren't these people ridiculous? Aren't they? Yeah, exactly. Aren't these people silly and ridiculous? And like, it it, it only it, it's it, which is too bad. And again, the the the, the interesting thing I think from a meta textual standpoint, we talked about this I think last week that uh, one of Christopher Guest and Jamie Lee Curtis's uh, daughters has since come out as, as trans, um, and so uh, you know I I don't know how that aligns with that. I, I I'd imagine she's not too thrilled with this particular. Um, joke or maybe there was something that was going on in their lives they don't want to speculate at all or really uh, about it but it it is just an interesting note that um that you would hope that at the very least uh that wouldn't be a stinger for uh, like a big goofy joke for him anymore
1: yeah yeah i mean it it comes from the comedy tradition the comfort uh to go to that place comes from the comedy tradition of um drag which is like drag can exist separate from transphobia like you can do drag and you're highlighting just like the absurdities of the way people talk to each other or you're making fun of um you know like very often uh, the best drag bits are like making fun of rich white women yeah But, like, this is a case where it's, like, they got comfortable with drag from their sort of skit comedy past or sketch comedy past, and then they sort of weaponized it here in a way that, like, is very uncomfortable for me. Because you're right, it's setting it up as if Christopher Guest is, like – Christopher Guest is, like, as the writer um, or Harry Shearer as the the improvisationist – Are like I have listened to trans people talk about their experiences, and I'm going to kind of reflect that in my character, and then everything that comes after that is just shitting on that, which just makes it harder because like they were so close.
0: Yeah, it's it's subtle shitting because I mean, but that's not like. Um, that is the tone of the movie. Like, it's not a big movie. That's the whole thing. Is it kind of underplays these moments?
1: Uh, the shock value of someone suddenly being yeah. trans, uh, suddenly in a movie, uh, out of the blue, is in its
0: own way transphobic, right? A hundred percent. I'm not. I'm. I'm. Like, there's no defending this. But I, your point is valid. The language that Harry Shearer's character uses to talk about it feels right. Michael McKean seems like a very supportive friend who uh, you know is there to support uh, her under any circumstances. And then it ends with the joke of, of the audience members looking at uh, him weirdly or her, sorry, uh, her weirdly in, in the casino. Um, and while, he, while she does the deep voice, and then the the giggle, and then it goes to Christopher Gasp making a joke about how he's uncomfortable with it. So, uh, which again, like to your point, director of the movie, having the last like what a weirdo moment is sucks. So terrible. Like cut cut it out. We never have to know how that band ends. We never have to have a recap of the folks again. Uh, Just Sisto, just a really sour note. To, to end the movie on in a movie that is up until that point I think is the only movie that doesn't have some level of like shitty homophobia jokes or homophobic jokes
1: yeah yeah all the jokes that you think are going to be become gay jokes um, at a certain point yeah. um, end up being just weird cult jokes yeah Or like jokes that you think they're going to be at the expense of a character's sexuality or actually just at the expense of this person found the wrong way out of a sad lifestyle. Like this person found the wrong way out. Uh,
0: Yeah. So it's interesting that it basically uh, uh, eschews that for its entire runtime and like comes in really hard at the end with hold on. We forgot something critically important to Christopher Guest, uh, and especially '90s and uh, two thousand movies. We gotta, we gotta make fun of people that aren't heteronormative.
1: Yeah, so, yeah, we've talked about this. We talked about this, I think, a lot during the um high school, the Shakespeare High School month where we did Clueless and Ten Things I Hate About You, where like all of a sudden you could get away with a lot of homophobia because you would pretend that you were coming from a place of um, familiarity or allyship
0: yeah um, we talked you about all that of a lot never
1: slur because you could all of a sudden drop the F-slur or write the F-slur into your script because, like, I have lots of gay friends. The gays love me. That's
0: not how this works. I'm sorry. No, no. There I mean, there was a ton of that. I remember even before we uh, started the podcast that for some reason I had rewatched Bring It On. I was like, holy shit. How is that? That's a PG-13 movie with, like, ten other F-bombs, yeah. right? That, like, is done from a place of support. Quote unquote, that like, and I remember us talking about like that quite a lot about like how interesting it would be to do a deep dive on those movies that like tried to express like in that, in that like, uh, terribly offensive, like, and not, not, this isn't like Queer Eye for the Straight Guy being offensive, it's like the culture that like sprung up around it that was like, hey, is it okay to be gay? Are gays taking over the mainstream? Like, that type of, like, cultural story around it, like, has so many of those examples of, like, teen movies or other movies where they tried to, like, uh, tried a little too hard to show they were okay with uh, the concept of people who weren't heterosexual and then do it in the same way that we kind of talked about with, like, our Bill Maher and month, and, or not month, episode two, where, like, they almost do it by, like i i'm gonna show how cool i am with other races by um saying racist shit because if we're if we're all equal if i see them all as equal then i have to i have to rib them the same way i would my white friends um it has that same like horribly misplaced support everyone's fair game for a
1: joke speaking as a white straight man who's never known an ounce of oppression, but yeah. um, let's talk about the new Main Street Singers as some of the other players. Yeah, the, it almost makes, makes sense been...
0: to, yeah, let's let's split them up into the bands and then maybe the periphery characters. Yeah,
1: so the M- new Main Street Singers were originally the Main Street Singers back in the 60s um, and the band, one of the, I believe one of the, the co-founders died or
0: he split off. Something. No, yeah, they split off and they got into a disagreement. He's not, it's a historian telling the story, and George. But they both led two bands, uh, and then a, f- a five-piece and a four-piece, and they became a noctet.
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, then they they split up, and uh, the new Main Street singers arose out of one of them, just sort of cynically... Yeah. Yeah, cynically dis- determining to um, put the band back together with, like, a younger group. Uh, some of them his family members, and some some of them just recruits. And um, he gets uh, the group together. That's, like, a majority of the comedic voices in this movie. This movie is a huge cast, but this is, like, a majority of the comedic kind of people you recognize. It's... um. John Michael Higgins and Jane Lynch are like the main couple of it and sort of like the, um, the ringleaders of it and also like the, the cult uh, leaders of it, uh, Parker Posey. Is in it as uh, Sissy Knox, uh, very much playing a character similar to Waiting for Guffman uh, in the sense that, like, she came from very, like, humble roots and then she was, like, kind of rescued um, in a sense. Um, And then also, like, you know, it doesn't end the same way. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Sort of rescued in a sense, and then, um, but yeah, the New Main Street Singers are are are, are the sort of more twee, sweet interpretation. They're extremely family friendly. Uh, Harry Shearer calls them a toothpaste commercial. It's just uh, very glitzy and, and clean, and it's very much them smiling over the pain, smiling <laughs> through the the trouble. And what we see in the behind the scenes, it, I wish there was more of this because like I think it would have helped the balance of the movie to have this band have more of a Uh, an imprint on the movie. Like I think people would have complained less about the end of the movie being not funny. If we saw the main street singers acting ludicrous, Um, they are a full on cult. They have concocted some sort of metaphysical God that they worship and they enact rules and rituals upon the group that the group has to follow. And one of them is that there's like a new member of the band that like has to wear the, he has uniform. His, like khaki sweater thing as a yeah. uniform until he can earn his way uh, into wearing casual, more casual clothes. Yeah,
0: and the cult specifically sees uh, he thinks that the, they think that all life is a reflection of color. That essentially matter and energy are just color, and the god that they worship is a color god. <laughs> Um, which I want to be very clear i <laughs> will call it like a, a god made of photons. um uh and they uh yeah they uh I love the way that John Michael Higgins character like understands uh so one of the, they don't do that much with it and, and just because they they you know are more focused on uh on the other two bands but one thing I really like about John Michael Higgins and Jane, Jane Lynch is that Jane Lynch is, like, unabashedly, like, not afraid to talk about it uh, in a documentary setting. and like Or, you know,
1: her, or her
0: very uh,
1: filthy past working in, like, pornography and yeah. as a sex worker.
0: Yeah. And John Michael Higgins doesn't even seem all that too, like, bothered of it. It's not like a cookie – uh, it's not that. Thank it's, God. It's it's not that. It is more like the Jane Lynch kind of describes like like unlike Cookie, who's very proud of how much fun she had before she you know uh, settled down and got married. Um, Jane Lynch is telling like this horrible story of like child sex exploitation uh, and stuff like that. At, while putting on a smiley face about it, which is is not to like, I mean, a lot of people have to unfortunately like do that with past trauma. So I'm not trying to judge her for it, but then like your point of like her, her, she then escapes that by, by this like color cult combined with this, this, this like, uh, uh, like cruise ship Branson, Missouri, Folk singing band and she just, you know, she has no shame about it. I love the way that John Michael Higgins, though, wants to be a supportive husband, believes in all the same stuff that she does, but also recognizes that, like, clearly he uh, has had more experiences and is less confident than Jane Lynch where uh, people have questioned him and are, and, 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 uh, are, uh, have raised their, their eyebrows at his beliefs because when he, when, when, uh, Jane Lynch finally starts talking about some of it, I just love the, like, you, that was your opening intro where he's like, well, of course, like, he does, like, the gaslighting thing where he tries to assume that we're all, uh, we're all we're all uh, working with the same base level of knowledge, but that base level of knowledge is fucking bonkers.
1: <laughs> he's also, yeah, he's been so in the weeds for so long yeah. that he thinks that, that 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 his language has adapted to the new the new crazy, and I uh I, I just adored this little peek behind the curtain. I wish there was more of it. Yeah. Because I think they could have continued to escalate this. At some point, <laughs> at some point he says um uh one second one second um it's like no ladies and gentlemen we don't ride around in broomsticks and wear pointy hats and then he goes well we don't ride around
0: on broomsticks (laughs) well the the great thing is that like hold on (laughs) why that joke is so fucking good is it does cut for five seconds to show their cult ritual and they're all wearing like fucking pointy wizard hats and then it goes come on we're Yes, we are witches of color, but we don't fly around in broomsticks and wear pointed hats. Literally right after we see them all in pointed hats. He doesn't know that we've seen that. That's a cutting thing. But he, like, thinks for a second and goes, well, we don't ride around in broomsticks. I, like, that is, like, the perfect, like, uh, cutaway mockumentary type joke where they can get away with. Where they're showing you something before the character tries to deny it. And then, like, the character's moment of realization... That what he just said wasn't wholly truthful. The audience gets to be one step ahead of it, uh, and it's, it's like that whole scene is so good. But I, I agree. They don't give this this band in the story that much room, which had to have been a cutting room floor decision because, like, I don't think you put Jane Lynch, John Michael H- Higgins, and Parker Posey three kind of guest ringers. Um, in in this section only to have like Parker Posey have barely any lines or moments. She has like a tiny little It's such a waste. It's such it, a it's, waste. But I again I imagine that's all cutting room floor stuff. I I there's I'm sure there's more stuff here. Is
1: this is, is 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 this a movie where uh he was cutting jokes because they weren't that funny, or was he cutting jokes because he had an overall vision that didn't include some silliness from certain people like because if it's the latter it's like well yeah gladly I would gladly have this movie 15 minutes longer and have more zany comedy in it right like if I had a if I had just like a, a, a more belly laughs Going into the third act or even in the middle of the third act, like that sincerity probably um, would have would have, you know, that sincerity would have sat better with both me and a a, a broader audience. But now I've kind of come around and I I like a lot of that, but like I'm not – I, I still think the movie could have ended on better jokes. Like after we get through the show, like the movie could have ended on better jokes. I'm wondering if there's something on the cutting room floor, because as he says, he usually shoots somewhere between 60 to a hundred hours of like improv. This is not, this is not a filmmaker saying I shoot 60 no. to a hundred hours of, of different takes, yeah. so to speak. It's a, it's him saying like I, we, we, we riff on our characters. We, you know, there's different takes where different jokes come out, but like it's, it's people interpreting the character in different directions, and then in the editing room, I spend months and months and months kind of putting it together. And and I really, really wish—I really, really wish that, um, like,
0: we could see some of that stuff.
1: Like, I, think so I, actually, get I actually
0: think there are deleted scenes on the DVD that I have somewhere of it. Like, I don't think—I uh, know uh, the Guffman one, I think, the Blu-ray has— Some deleted scenes. I I think like a lot of uh, a lot of things outside of the context of the story, because everything is generally pretty small joke wise, like at best you're you're going, huh? Like, you almost need really the re-edited version to feel That's like... That's what I'm saying. I wish I could yeah. see
1: these things in, like, an extended edition as, like, a bonus feature on the DVD. So if it doesn't work, I can go back to the original.
0: Yeah, my idle It is just idle speculation. Like, my gut tells me, though, is that he leaned away from some of the silly stuff when he realized how well the... the the Eugene Levy Catherine O'Hara stuff was working, like, yeah. Because it, it does it does feel like he is very like he's giving some space for for silliness, which obviously the color cult is. Uh, Bob Balaban's OCD. We really talk about that, but like there's some early notes of him like being a little bit uh, of a control freak and OCD. And there there is this like very funny scene of him and um, Michael Hitchcock, who. Uh, uh, Runs the uh the the stage uh the, the concert hall location that they're going to perform of him going through the place and recognizing danger at every turn uh with like uh could people poke their eyes on this plant if they were to walk into these sticks on uh, the these rose bushes at uh at um at, at, at uh, eye height or could they trickle trip over the vines that are hanging down off the plant and like. That, that part is funny and then it combines with him doing his kickoff speech at the concert warning everyone <laughs> about, about the dangers of the plants and the audience thinks it's a joke. It's like it's, – it's really, really good or like his paranoia about the chandeliers and stuff. Like I, I think that stuff is very funny but I remember the first time I saw the movie like those moments of silliness – in uh, comedy feel like almost in some ways left over of a different version of the movie.
1: Like Yeah, yeah. It feels like well he ha- he
0: couldn't get rid of the MC. <laughs> um so And I'm not saying you should have, like I do find those things funny, but you almost have like this, especially by the back half of this movie You almost have, like, these tiny little escapes of comedy as opposed to – like, when you think of, like, the back half of Best in Show, it's a movie that's funny from the beginning. But the whole dog show between Fred Willard and, like, you know, Michael Hitchcock and Parker Posey's dog getting kicked out and what happens to, like – uh, you know, uh, uh, cookie and like all like it is it is ratcheting up the comedy to a crescendo. Uh, when when the movie transitions back to Mickey and Mitch, uh, there's that great scene of or maybe oh, sorry, maybe this is a good time to transition back to Mickey and Mitch because there's like that lovely scene in the middle where they're at the record store, which in a in a contrast with Spinal Tap, you know, Spinal Tap has them in the middle of the movie. They're at the record store with autographs and. Um, no one's coming in and they're sitting there recognizing that their career is over. That not one person showed up for an autograph for their new album. Mitch and, uh, Mitch and Mickey are sitting there and just this long line of people saying, Oh my God, like, it's so great to see you guys together. I discovered your albums later in life. Like, you know, Mickey comments on like young people telling us all this stuff in there. You know, they're hearing these wonderful stories about themselves and, uh, You know, Mickey's telling these stories about how how great it was working with Mitch and all those good memories are flooding back. And like, you know, like the movie kind of starts focusing much more on that. Even the early funny stuff with with Mitch and and Mickey. uh, And there is a couple very early funny things. I mentioned the album covers post-breakup in a vacuum uh, are very funny. Um, and and when he first arrives at Mickey's house, and Mickey's husband is the loves model trains, and he insists on seeing the model trains. Very funny scene. I also love the underplaying of of Mitch going. I've been traveling for twenty hours, but okay. <laughs> like like a, I just want to sleep but I'll go see your model trains uh and then giving his suggestions to what the town could be like in fall uh to try to make conversation but which is met with some uh some like oh I just want you to compliment I don't want you to to give suggestions uh looks like even those like early funny moments almost completely go away from Mitch and Mickey like I don't think they have after the train scene, Is there a a joke that they like a a funny moment between the two of them or in their? No, there's
1: one joke that Catherine O'Hara has where uh, Mitch goes missing and she goes, Is there a cockfighting arena around here? (laughs) Which is just very funny that he would, for some reason, (laughs) he's such a gentle, broken man. And for some reason, she'd be like, He used to love (laughs) cockfighting. I don't know. So you talked a little bit about not. Not really liking his accent.
0: I think you're well, right. I said I, think... I came. I said I said once again. It hits. It just hits you really hard. Like yeah. it's very big. It's very different. At first, and this happened to me this time too. It, at at first, it sounds like the voice that should be in a five minute SCTV sketch of like a, a drug adult. <laughs> also, because it sounds very hard
1: to produce.
0: Yeah, it's painful to listen to at times. It, it and, sounds
1: like talking hurts for him.
0: And like a lot of things, like, again, this watch was the same. Once once I really, like, the character itself, like, opened up to me again, I forgot about the voice completely. And it's like, oh, that's just how Mitch talks. Um, but, it's, but it is aggressively difficult to, to deal with at first, even for myself upon, like, the 10th watch of this movie.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's probably a little bit too much, but I, I think it does help you help remind you and how few jokes he produces out of that voice. Um, the, the one where he's like, I'd love to see Crabville in the autumn. Um, that would be quite ma- magnificent. Um, and then, and then that scene just ends with the dipshit husband being like, it's, it's, it's Crabtown, not Crabville.
0: I know I know like that's like he's not interested in like he he wants you to be impressed yeah
1: yeah he uh he's not interested in the poetry which lets you know a lot about their marriage where it's like they're financially solvent and stable because of this whatever catheter company he runs um but but like they don't feed each other's flame at all um but like mickey and mitch are vir uh not virulent but like they're turbulent and they're wild but, like, they feed each other's flame. Like, they're the ones that they, that, you know, when you're up late at night and you're thinking about, like, <laughs> what in your life went wrong or what you, what you, the different life you could have led, they think about each other. And uh, Mitch being now sort of a broken man, sort of resigned to his fate. And also the line that really, uh, really bothers me is um, Bob Belban's character manipulating Mitch
0: into doing the show. Oh, yeah.
1: It really, really bothers. And not well. I mean, Bob Balaban's on the movie, but Bob. Baliband's they make it
0: very clear Bob Balaban sucks. Like, doesn't doesn't Mitch hit him? Mitch hit uh, Michael Hitchcock's character hit him at some point. Yeah, at the top of the head, and,
1: and it's yeah. it's like a joke that the audience is like, Michael Hitchcock is not even slightly uh, in the wrong there, but Bob Balaban uh, is so desperate to pull off the show, and he has such a very specific vision of the show. That he, he manipulates Mitch, who is literally in psychiatric care. And his do- they interview a doctor character, who I'm sure had more reels, um, who's like, uh, I thought it was a mistake to release him early at this yeah. point, especially for something that would be... He, she doesn't say the word triggering, but she says something <laughs> essentially that, like for something that would be extremely triggering and, and bothersome to him. Um, so she... The, the, she calls it out, really highlighting how how shitty it is, and Bob Alban is forcing him out of this, which I think you having this sort of pity or care for Eugene Levy's character, the the rest of the movie, that like Eugene Levy. Um, was a, a very a man who had problems with intimacy and working through his sort of like creative passions with somebody else. Uh, and then when uh, his personal life collapsed, everything collapsed, right? Well, mostly had a po- yeah a
0: problem with uh, communication almost. Yes. And
1: now he literally has, like, a communication problem. Like, he he, he has trouble. Like, every word sounds like it's pained. So, I I really like what Eugene Levy is going for. You're right. They probably could have pulled the the, the foot off the gas pedal towards the end of the movie. Um, Because even when he's handing her the rose, he's still like, I found this rose and I thought it was quite magnificent. Like, he's still doing the... which at that point she's just looking so relieved at him that he actually came back and that like, uh, and she's like appreciating the flower with him and he's still talking in that sort of stilted manner. And you're, it's a little bit too much and it kind of detracts from the whole point of the Mitch and Mickey story when both of the characters, Both of the the actors seem very clear that their plot is not the funny plot this time around. Their plot is the the heart of the movie.
0: When Catherine O'Hara, like everything is like, she is giving a full on dramatic performance which does contrast weirdly sometimes with mitch but i actually think part of the reason i come around to mitch's accent or voice each time is that she is so grounded that she can't help but ground what mitch is doing like i do think that if eugene levy's character existed outside of katherine o'hara's character it would seem very broad and lazy sctv-ish which is why like in the at the opening, I am immediately kind of uh, like, you know, making making the oh, I don't know if I like this face. But then, like as she as he starts interacting with Catherine O'Hara, she's so goddamn good in this movie that like it makes him a real person as opposed to a cartoon character.
1: Yeah, a hundred, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Yeah, and I um there's so many shots where Catherine they leave they linger on Catherine O'Hare just kind of staring off into the staring off uh camera slightly. Um yeah. sort of thinking about the past. And you're utilizing her entire toolbox there yeah. in a way that like Feels like Catherine O'Hara doesn't always get to use. Like I, I absolutely love her in Shit's Creek. She's like a confoundingly weird character. But like the fact that for your consideration it wasn't a very good movie, and there wasn't a whole lot between that and Shit's between Shit's Creek and this, like that you could she could really like express how good of an actor she is. Um, yeah. Is is pretty disappointing because she is
0: genuinely like one of our most talented actors, comedic or not. Yeah, I mean it is great that like uh, I mean she's the fact that she gets. We talked about this a little with Eugene Levy too. Like the fact that they're getting like these this this huge role that is well recognized and well uh, acclaimed and stuff like that. Um, after all these years is, is fantastic. We called her out as like the secret M- MVP of Guffman. Obviously she's great in, in best in show. Like, I, I don't even think you need to say she's the secret MVP in this movie. Like she is, she is just giving an, an amazing, amazing, like dramatic, melancholy, bittersweet, sad performance that like, again, it, it, it feels like that they realized what was going on here and like pivoted the movie away from gas silliness to focus on uh Mitch and Mickey's like emotions uh relationship and the, the 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 concept of lost love which which i also have to believe like uh you know that th- you know you mentioned for your consideration it almost is like that Christopher Guest saw the performance and was like, "We need to do something better with with this to really kind of give her a space to be a lead and to show off her dramatic performance in a comedy movie and stuff like that." And then he just kind of whiffs it quite a bit. Not not because of Catherine O'Hara; it's just a bad script and mean, and not so good.
1: Yeah. Yeah, 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 I'm I, I'm with you. Um, the but when they finally get to the the final performance, and Mitch does show up, and he has the, the 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 rose for her, and he was you know just thinking of her and trying to find a way to sort of make amends before they go out and perform together and kind of express like I'm ready to I'm ready to either put aside what we had or whatever it is we need to do to to move on with our lives. Um, let's let's do it, and they have the kiss, and it's such a beautiful moment. And I actually really like the way their their story ends, um, yeah. which is that she's performing again. She's performing for a Sure Flow, obviously, which is a little bit of a bummer. But she says, you know, people said I let him on, and, he up, and then he yeah. is in a writing, just, just a wild writing state. And then he says, and he's like, people said I – shouldn't have kissed her i shouldn't have let her on like they're both operating on this sort of like i came out on top
0: kind of lie they need to tell themselves while recognizing that they're almost worked as two pieces of flint that reunited that reignited both of their creative spark
1: yeah, it's kind of it's kind of adorable because it's both of them being like a, the happy ending is not them to be ending up together. I don't think the happy ending is her performing songs for Sure Flow either. But um, yeah. the, the happy ending is not those two. They, they weren't really meant to be together. The happy ending is both of them coming away from that relationship being like, we did a really good job and I came out on top. And they both kind of believe that. Yeah. Uh, that's that's sweet neither of them yeah, feels like they uh, took it they took advantage of the other one but both of them kind of feel like well we you know I, you know i <laughs> i i led him on a little bit but you know it's been a long time and i couldn't help myself like that kind of that, that, that kind of sweetness is is like a complicated note to yeah. end up this movie on that like really d- dwells in like complicated dramatic moments uh, right up next to very dumb cruel comedic
0: moments yeah I mean I also think it it works just because like it is this like if circumstances were different there would be nothing to stop them from going and getting a drink and maybe like firing up an old romance after this like it doesn't feel like they weren't meant to be like in some sort of cosmic uh, gumbo (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, <laughs> too much. I think you should leave. <laughs> I was um,
1: waiting for the first one of us to drop cosmic gumbo, and frankly, uh, that season came out. Uh, what will be at this point four months ago? So, frankly, I mean, we, we, we had great great reservation.
0: I think it's pretty good. I mean, we have referenced it quite a lot, but on the flip side. I mean, even the first season stuff, which is years old at this point, feels always relevant. To say we're all trying to find the guy that did this, so uh, <laughs> I think I think that is like uh, like some sort of you know timeless cosmic gumbo, Peter. <laughs> I was saying on the set to my friend. <laughs> It's like a cosmic gumbo. Uh, no, I, I think like there's that the, the, that feeling of like, oh, it's not like they weren't like meant to be. It's just they just can't, you know, it's just they can't really be together right now. Not without seriously upending um, a comfortability that they've like, you know, fallen into in their 60s. Right. Yeah. Like, they've,
1: they've got the, a narrative. They've got a narrative that they've they've grown accustomed to. Um, yeah. And uh uh, just getting used to getting used to and getting comfortable with the sort of um vagaries of life that's not the word but uh the sort of um uh, this the the sort of uh you know uh, disappointments of life is truly important um it's it, getting used to the things that didn't quite go your way in life is is Tr- truly how you become happy because you're never going to avoid disappointment in life there's never going to be <laughs> there's a lot of people that like claim that they're like uh, like oh I I, uh, I, have, I live my life with no regrets um, those people are lying they're um, telling themselves a lie um, they're telling themselves to stop being reflective of their past um, it's good to not live your life constantly regretting things but all of us at times go well, what what if we had did this? What if we had done that? And that's healthy. That's that's part of reflecting on your experience. It's also part of reflecting on 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 the sort of freedom or, or uh, confinements of of, of uh, how life works. Where sometimes it feels like you have awe. you have all the choices in the world, and that's a prison. And then sometimes you feel like uh, there's absolutely no path forward. It's it's a multiple choice test with nothing but the the letter A on it, and yeah. Uh, that's that that sort of beautiful um that sort of beautiful nuanced middle space is why i i like movies like this is is because they can kind of capture that that zone in life where um (laughs) like i don't have a perfect objective answer for how this was supposed to end no one on planet Earth, given this information rationally, no therapist, no life coach, nobody could give me an answer that would perfectly explain, you know, the the sort of mix of life. Um, however, um we're here and we have to deal with it and all you have to do
0: is get comfortable with that's that vagueness and i i love yeah that. i mean i think this i mean this this movie aligns with something i think it's saying a little bit like i mean i really i don't really believe in the concept of soulmates for all the reason i don't know that many people that do like relationships take work and i've had relationships where it wasn't worth the work anymore for various reasons right uh, some just a, a question of compatibility. Some uh, a question of like future goals and where we wanted to be that didn't align. Some in the moment of like an argument that never got resolved properly. All those sort of things, and like you know, some of those relationships that you know so that that uh, you know ended due to you know it, they just didn't work anymore or weren't willing to do the work. End with. um because of feelings that don't exist anymore or not in the way that we expected them to exist. Or sometimes they do exist and it's just a matter of, for for the other reasons, this will no longer work anymore. And I, I think this movie has a good reflection of that. Like, you know, we're so used to movies showing the two people that had the tumultuous breakup in relationship. Uh, and relationship. And worth noting, it doesn't seem like for the most part the relationship was all that tumultuous it just sounds like you know um there was a a severe lack of communication at the center um and an unwillingness to work past it uh or uh, inability to work past it that then ended it but that you know there's the, the feelings never necessarily went away but that doesn't mean when you reconnect 30 years later that you can just pick up where you left off even if it becomes very apparent that like there's a a passion and a spark. And so, yeah, I love that they get to go off and, like, in some ways have the uplift of that excitement of recognizing that they can feel a certain way again Um, and, you know, using it to, in in some ways, almost honor, like, it it feels almost like a memorial where uh, we can't be together to let that spark actually see where it goes from a you know, uh, cohabitation or co- relationships, uh, standpoint, but we can kind of honor how important that relationship was by like going back and doing the thing that encapsulated our relationship, which is, you know, writing and making music.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that's I think that's really well put. Um and that's why I like this movie is like it's a little bit of a wounded bird of a movie. Um Yeah. Like I don't think it I don't think it totally sings. I don't think it totally flies. Uh, I guess if I'm sticking with that parlance. Um but there is some I mean birds there. also very popular in folk singing. Oh, <laughs> yes. Yes. They talk about birds
0: all the fucking time. You know why Half of Leonard birds. Cohen's songs are about birds. It's cuz they ride on the wind, which as we mentioned before, folk singers love
1: <laughs> i like a lot of folk music but if a folk song starts and then you look at the name of the you look at the name of the track and it's the name of either a flower or a bird candles t- tell me you are not gonna let out a big old groan <laughs> you're like oh the night jar i don't even know if that's a bird or a flower
0: oh candles yeah it it, it does feel like uh, that somehow, candles like, i get it life is short folk singers at a crystal ball that only showed the aisles of Bed Bath & Beyond <laughs> like this is where all our titles are coming from baby God yeah I
1: I, uh, I love folk music but it's also the easiest genre in the world to make fun of like Simon and Garfunkel were in New York in the late 60s early 70s like when New York was like the New York that people are still hungering for and yeah. they were like I stay in my room and I read poetry. I never talk to anyone.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, um, I. <laughs> I'll also note though um, that being able to look into the future, Bed Bath and Beyond, uh, really highlights uh, Bed Bath and Beyond's uh, most misguided product, which was, of course, their uh, quickly discontinued lotion, the scent of the Edmund Fitzgerald. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Uh, this smells like oil. <laughs>
0: <laughs> this sucks. I don't know if I like a lotion that smells like candles. Is this supposed to smell like candles? Well, burning.
1: It's <laughs> just sulfur and olive oil. <laughs> <Creamy>. uh, uh <laughs> You will be flammable after using this lotion. Is this anchovies? <laughs> well, kind of. <laughs> roasted choves uh yeah let's talk so we I I think we let's do some funny moments before we we bound out of here
0: uh let's let's give a couple more minutes to the uh the folksmen yeah before their end we don't have to define them just by a horribly misguided terrible offensive joke
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love, uh, I actually love, uh, you already mentioned it, but the joke that they eventually were uh, sort of bumped down from different uh, record companies and and distributors, and eventually they got to one that just didn't even punch the holes in the middle of the records. It would just just teeter on the middle of the spindle. (laughs) And then if you punched in a hole, and then the line is, if you
0: punched a hole in them, you'd have a good time. I know that that feels so like the spinal tap muscles coming full circle like those those opening things were counting the the um, depths that they had to go to to continue to produce music uh, is so great.
1: Yeah. And and there's a very sweet moment at the end of the movie where the new uh, Main Street singers and the folksmen all come upstairs to watch the end of the Rainbow song and then join in for the final (laughs) song. By the way, is the final song? In the the movie, um, Mighty Wind. Was that improvised? Sorry. Was that them all just deciding that they were all going to play that song together at the end? Or was that planned?
0: I mean, it must have been planned. Because they all kind of go up and get ready to go out for their places. I did weirdly – this is the problem sometimes with, like, taking notes for a podcast. I don't want to sound like cinema sins. I did wonder, like, huh, it would have been interesting to show one scene of them working on this together and maybe the dynamics. Like, it, do, it does feel like from everything you've been presented, like, when did they practice this? Yeah, I wasn't sure if that was just
1: all of them deciding to play a folk standard, uh, you know, obviously a fictional one, but a folk standard together. And, uh, them, because, like, them so. all going upstairs, because 100% them all going upstairs to watch, uh, Mitch and Mickey perform was not the plan. Yeah, but they knew who was singing
0: what lines in that song.
1: Yeah, but they were like – they were. The, that's kind of the point, right, is that they were all planning on staying in their dressing rooms and just listening on the little radio or even turning the radio off because, like, sometimes when you're doing these sort of concerts, like, you – especially if you, you're not friends with the people there, you, you kind of just you, – you stay in your room, you wait until it's your time and the set list to go up, and then you go back to your room, and you might even leave before the concert's over unless you're taking a bow at the end. Like, them going upstairs to watch the show live – is definitely led with the sort of like excited energy, excited kid like energy of like, this is folk music. This is what we we got in. Like, yeah. the song doesn't just inspire Mitch and Mickey it inspires the audience, which that's another thing we didn't talk about. At Waiting for Guffman, Mascots or Best in Show in all four of these movies.
0: The audience fucking loves it. None of these shows bomb. No, even Guffman. Like, yeah, Waiting for Guffman doesn't get the budget. It doesn't get Guffman. Best in show has a lot of varying degrees of success based on who wins and who doesn't. Uh, Mascots obviously, like, uh, doesn't get their cable deal, um, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, this is the one where from a show perspective, everything works out great.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, like, that's kind of a sweet thing that Christopher Guest does in all these movies. Like, even in mascots, like, even – Oh, yeah, they, they love them they love pretty much all of them um and, and the end of this ending in such a jubilant note and everyone being so excited to perform together even though they all kind of like some of them don't like the new main street singers <laughs> the new main street singers don't seem to recognize any of the other bands as real bands um some of those dynamics could have been more hashed out to make that ending more powerful yeah. like you just said like i want to see them all practicing the final song i want to see them uh like uh, uh, you know sharing practice space or just uh, yeah because they like, never meet up they, they
0: really are separate unlike best in the show where mixer. they come together and all of a sudden you have like the dynamics of them coming together and stuff like that or even mascots you know at a, like you you they essentially just play the song together and they have no interaction before that. I, I do want to get back. To, I don't want to miss the part of like – I do think it's a very funny joke that like the new Main Street singers <laughs> um, steal. Like it, a hit song that fo- the folks sang. saying. Like can you imagine – like I remember um, there was some like news article 10 years ago, some band. Doing like that was opening for this is maybe completely wrong. But like opening for Radiohead or something, doing a cover of creep uh, before Radiohead came out and getting kicked off the not not like like getting kicked off the tour or something like that. Like I Does that sound familiar to you? Like, I didn't look it up, but, like, some opening band literally doing a cover of the main band's song and that band getting pissed and kicking them off. Like, that just feels like an AV Club Newswire thing I read 15 years ago.
1: Um... I mean, Creep is an obvious example because they... I could be completely wrong. They purposely didn't play the song for, not decades, but close to it.
0: Um... But I do think, like the the the, the hutzpah, for lack of a better word. Um, now I'm now I'm uh, channeling. Um... I want.
1: I was trying to find the right time to read the entire Lars Olsen yeah. bit where he just. <laughs> Can I just do it now? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> so, Lars Ol- Olfin is speaking about Balban, who's obviously Jewish, and s- his father is Steinblum, who's the big record producer, and he's telling a story about Stein- uh, Jonathan Steinblum. In a board meeting, he's just talking like a normal guy, and this is Ed Bagley Jr., who is like, I don't know, six foot seven, extremely Scandinavian looking guy. And um, uh, and he re- and he's, and he's it's all of a sudden he's talking about Steinblum and he just completely switches his his vocab in a way that I had to rewind the scene three or four times because it's the funniest fucking thing and this is the whole thing he goes the nachos that I'm feeling right now because uh, your, your dad was it was it a mishbukka to me he, I, when I heard that I, I got these tickets to the folksmen I let out a gesheria and I was running with my friend running around like a, a ville de chai uh, right in the theater in the front row and so we've got the ship the, the shipkas and because we're sitting right there and, and it's a mitzvah what your dad did it's, it's a mitzvah I want to try and give that back to you Oh, uh, Okanora uh, I say and God bless him um, and I obviously butchered that, but like there's a weird amount of precision yeah. that Ed Bakley Jr. gives to each Jewish word. And I don't know if he's pronouncing it totally, <laughs> totally properly, but like the weird attention to detail that he gives when he just decides that he is speaking, he's just dropping Yiddish sentences yeah. into a sentence. And like, as you just heard, one every like five words, like really overdoing it after a long sequence where he didn't say yiddish word and it's so fucking funny
0: because it he is, looks like kind of- Ed Bagley Jr. and he's reading it like Ed Bagley be- <laughs> Jr. Ed, Ed Bagley Jr. continues to be like the secret energy in like these movies like uh, even even mascots, I actually think he has like maybe the funniest character in that movie. We didn't talk about that for Guffman, but like he 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 always has these bit parts, and he's always so good. We talked about him a lot in Best in Show and how good he is at just being the nicest person dealing with these very com- like generously complicated individuals. Um, I did some googling, and while the creep example I couldn't find exactly, there are tons of examples of opening bands covering their headliner songs. Uh, almost all of them go very poorly. (laughs) Yeah, like, why would you do that? Uh, there's a, there's a uh, Sonic Youth, um, example of, like, um, them playing, like the opening band playing, uh, Hang On To Your Ego, when uh, Sonic Youth was doing covers of I Know There's An Answer, um, and him getting mad and said they had to scratch it off their playlist because you ruined it for us. There's, like, um, Metallica opening up. With a, 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 an Aussie song in the 80s and Aussie wanting him kicked off the tour. Like um, apparently it's a huge faux pas. Um, and I knew i had heard about it before. And I'm sure there's other examples. There's a more recent example I couldn't find. Um, but I remember hearing about. Uh, You're on tour the- with these people. Just ask. I know, it feels very subtle, and, like, the fact that, like, the new Main Street singers are, like, that are essentially, theoretically had their own songs in the 60s when they were the Main Street singers, instead opened with a cover of the next band in one of their bigger hits feels so aggressive. It's, uh, it, it, uh, I like the way that they just react to, like, what the fuck was that? Like, why? Would they do that? And then, of course, every every way they have to like um, – uh, the, the, that has a very funny scene because they're all trying to figure out ways to like deal with the situation. Like do we open with our other hit? That feels like, oh, here's the hit and I'm talking through that. I also love Harry Shears being like, we got to be bold. I got an idea. We open with wandering. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> what we were already going to
2: do. <laughs> That's How would that be bold?
1: <laughs> um, oh yeah. it's, it's it's so cool. good yeah
0: I love um
1: yeah i, I it's I a good segue
0: lo- to funny moments either.
1: yeah i qu- i quite love uh some of the um just inner inner dynamics of these weirdos together um but like that's why I want more of it like I want. I yeah. want more of that sort of the or more of that sort of silliness, but yeah, I, I think the two lines that made me laugh the hardest are are a hundred percent the. Oh, but I think the Ed Bagley Jr. line really rings for me in like a twenty twenty one sense because uh, I mean, for one, I'm a extremely goyish man, so it made me laugh on that level. But two,
0: and you're tall uh, and blonde. Yeah,
1: yeah. So it was very funny. And then
0: two, Ed Bagley Jr. is, is like this, your idol, right? Like you you aspire, aspire to be like, to be like Ed yes. Bagley the third. <laughs> at Bakley, Juniorist.
1: Um and then uh you no know, yeah, it's basically uh him and, and Ruger Hauer. I, I got very disappointed when I found out that like puberty puberty was just over and I was never gonna look like Ruger <laughs> Hauer someday. Um but uh the Uh, it's also funny as shit in a 2021 sense because like that's something that we see all the time on social media is uh, particularly neoliberals but like liberals who want to uh, don the mask of uh, allyship um and will like adopt um like uh like black speech patterns or Jewish speech patterns or Hispanic speech patterns or, uh, try and use the, the lingo of the gay community and like try and ad- ad- adopt it to show that they've like shown allyship. But all it's really done is shown that like <laughs> you've like hung out a little bit with these people or read their tweets. Um, <laughs> like you're not actually doing anything. You're just kind of co-opting their language. Uh, and so like that's part of the reason that Bagley Junior thing makes me laugh so fucking hard. And then the um, the, uh, 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 the, the sequence where, uh, the other sequence that makes me laugh the hardest is, is the one we already mentioned, which with um, Mitch talking about the trains and wanting to see the, this town in autumn and finding like a beauty in, in the serenity of the train set. And and then him immediately, the, the dipshit husband immediately stepping on that moment, because like that's kind of that's kind of Mitch in a nutshell as he's finding poetry and these these small moments of life these 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 little exchanges and finding beauty in in all sorts of parts of life but like the business side of the folk music is just continually stepping (laughs) on his head um the business side of the world is continually stepping on his head and keeping him from actually enjoying it and i feel like um while the the former is not really a theme in the movie like weird allyship um (laughs) Like awkward, uh, off kilter allyship. The the latter is kind of the movie. Like, yeah, uh, being agreed. manipulated and by 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 being manipulated
0: and stepped on by by business interests. Agree, hundred percent. And one of one of those one of the examples of that that plays like a through line through this movie that I find so funny, and it's very subtle. Uh, I didn't quite get all the different like callback to it, but like. There is a real recognition that, like, folk music was a fad and this record producer, like – like, a lot of actual record producers when certain genres become popular, like, try to flood the market while the getting was hot, right? Like, try to sell as much as they possibly could. So, like, the Main Street singers, for example, say – uh, you know, 10 years and 30 albums later, we called it (laughs) quits. Like, uh, the George, the founder, like, 10 10 years and 30 albums later, but, like, they're just trying to, like, you know, they produced an album every four months, and I think you see that with so many of the songs, right? Like, I reference the weird, like, uh, old McDonald folk thing they do as one of their songs of the thing, but I think you have a lot of examples of this, you know, L. Ron Hubbard style of, like, first draft, last draft, get it out the door. Like, we gotta fill out albums and it's folk music. We, you know, you can sing about anything. It doesn't matter. And I think you get a lot of insight into that uh, in the Folk's when they're kind of going through their various songs about how, like, it it literally is just throwing shit at the wall to fill out concepts and stuff like that. You know, they have the the song about the Spanish Civil War. They have other odd ones, like, when they're practicing, like, the the very one note and offensive like when Harry she- Shears like talk about the local man like
2: there's, there's there's
0: nothing there but it's like a song that they made because even old Joe's place their, uh you know their hit is just like predicated on the dumbest of punchlines of like e e o's and like, then everyone it, laughs people love but it. it but it's just about like even though that one hit in a specific way, it's just about content. There's so many examples of that. So I love that joke. And then the other two little small ones I'll call out, the one that made me laugh the hardest the first time I saw this movie, like broke me, was uh, Jennifer Coolidge has a little bit part um, uh, in this movie. Uh, But uh, when she's talking to to Mickey's husband about the trains, and he's like obviously a little like, you know, smitten and lustful about – uh being is attracted to jennifer coolidge and he goes on and on about his model trains and she just goes yeah thank god for model trains because uh without them they wouldn't have got the idea for the big trains <laughs> 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 and just then the look on his face that like everything's been lost uh great uh great little moment and i mentioned it before when they were arguing about costumes but i but i the, the costume argument is very funny to me and I love where it ends with Harry Shear being like, well, yeah, it wasn't retro though. It was nowtro." <laughs>
1: And like, and them not knowing like what the word around, was right? for, like,
0: con- yeah, contemporary. <laughs> they're, like, neutro.
1: Because they're having a real dialogue, right? Yeah. Like, they're talking about, like, well, is it corny for us to dress like we did in the 60s? And they're like, yeah. was that, even back then, was that a retro thing? Like, that's an actual discussion they're having. Like, that's the folksmen yeah. in this movie. They're usually having real discussions. They're not, like, completely being ridiculous. I I both really like uh, Jen- that Jennifer Coolidge joke, like it's so fucking funny, and it made me laugh really hard. But also, Jennifer Coolidge put a lot, a lot to her accent is so oh
0: yeah, it's very, sca- it's very Scandinavian.
1: Yeah, it's 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 you can't really tell you can't really tell exactly what she's doing
0: at all. Yeah, uh, a lot of paprika. <laughs>
1: yeah, she can't. She's she's like stuck in, and a lot of her characters are like this. Um. But like she's kind of stuck in a um... sex spot Yeah, yeah, there's that. And, but she's she's stuck in a plastic surgery like Botox. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. Like and, and so her face only does this with her lips pursed out. It's like Jennifer Coolidge, I'm going to need you to, to also peel this back about 30 percent because you were a recognizable human being in the last movie. And in this one, you're some
0: sort of. Um, uh, Barbie doll that's been <laughs> brought to life Yeah, she. I mean she's there for like a lot of people like Larry Miller are there for like you know one joke and get out uh, But like, that's the other thing is like how the fuck do they
1: make these movies was Larry Miller there for weeks and then like he shot a bunch of shit and then he ended up in the being in the, <laughs> the movie for 45 seconds or is Larry Miller really like yeah I got a free weekend I'll shoot some stuff for you because it does not feel like the latter it feels like the former right
0: it does feel like the former. It does feel like a lot of people, especially this movie more than the others, that a lot of people went to this movie like fucking Adrian Brody in The Thin Red Line. Like, yes. oh, I'm not like like Parker Posey. Like, you can't help but feel, but she's like, oh, I was pretty central to the last two movies. I have a line in this one. It feels odd i remember you know being there for weeks and weeks giving material about my character and the color cult and stuff like go
1: watch ads for this movie that came out theatrically and then if it's possible watch the comedy central ads we all saw a hundred thousand times with her screaming at hamilton like that she was a central part of the marketing for best in show
0: because her and yeah
1: her and michael hitchcock are the funniest parts of that movie
0: yeah, uh, yeah, it, it definitely weird. feels like they found a, a different direction, which, again, I, I think leaves a little bit to – I kind of want to see the more – I kind of want to see both versions, and I think, I think why – to kind of go to final thoughts, I think why I really love this movie, and I think it's easy – easily to see why myself as a 20-year-old was l- hoping for another mind-blowing comedy of best in show was let down by this movie – i do think that even i think i think there's some legitimate criticism uh and why it isn't quite on the level of the other movies is that it just it's it, it feels like it started off as a best in show riff and then became uh about something else and it didn't know how to quite skirt that line successfully but uh, a lot of what is here is still very very good just not when you're comparing it to you know a couple of the funniest movies of all time, in Best in Show, and this Spinal Tap. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, I'm. uh I'm out of. I'm out of notes. Great. At least one of these was kept to a reasonable <laughs> time. Uh, I but yeah, we're, we're gonna be done forty minutes ago. <laughs> Peter, we're uh, look. I'm gonna say that I, I I hate to toot our own horn. I really hate Don't. to toot. I hate to I hate to do what we call a mighty wind, as they say. Um, but we uh, we are we're very Christmas centric people. We love Christmas. Um, and in s- now six years of doing this podcast, we have been able to come up with a different, distinct Christmas theme every single year. And I'm I'm kind of planting the flag here right now, Peter, because. We really, really want to go back to some of our other thematic wells that we've done over Christmas, and I almost guarantee it's the last year I'm going to be able to say this. But uh, we have w- one more new-ish Christmas theme for our December month, uh, and that is we haven't f- quite realized, figured out the name, but um, I'm going to I'm going to start with uh, saying, did you know that this December uh, we love to watch has a Christmas month? Um, Which is a reference to the now very lame uh, Twitter joke that, did you know that Die Hard is actually a Christmas movie? We're going to do the Die Hard movies, one through four. We have made the conscious uncoupling to not do the fifth, which we've never seen and don't want to end the month on. Uh, we're doing the Die Hard movies mainly because it just feels like a set of movies that Peter and I have always wanted to talk about. It feels very appropriate for we, – we tend to hold off a lot of things that we love talking about. And then one of the advantages of doing that when we finally are getting around to it, we're like, well, we waited for six years to talk about Die Hard. Let's just get them all out at once because we don't want to wait another six years to do Die Hard 2 or Die Hard 3. But it's also born a lot out of um, – something that I think is very appropriate for Christmas. So even though only the first two movies are real Christmas movies, the third and the fourth one, I think, hits a Christmas theme, Peter, which is people who love each other at the holidays get into fights. And Peter and I have very differing, strong feelings about the third and the fourth movie in this series that we have spent many times over the last few years exchanging text fights about. And it, we thought it was fun enough that we should just do it as part of a podcast. So, yeah, we are doing Die Hard, Die Hard 2, Die Harder, Die Hard with a Vengeance, the, in my opinion, the worst of the four that I've seen, uh, Peter's and, and, and uh, guest Ryan Bolin's favorite, um, and then Live Free or Die Hard, uh, the movie that Peter – Uh, I believe thinks is the worst of the four and is my second favorite after the original.
1: Yeah, that's about right. It's a uh, three, three or one is the best. And then one and uh, two and four are both good. Like I'm not going to
0: hate them. I don't think any of them are like bad to, to your point, but (laughs) I do specifically ignore are We're, we're we're ignoring a good day to die hard. Uh, Um, but I also, I love die hard too as well. So I, I I think this is going to be a lot of fun. And I think we have Ryan Boland coming in for both three and four. Mainly because he agrees with you on three and wants to cover it, and then it makes sense for us all to hash out the three to four debate together. So yeah, it's, I, a, it's a movie that's important to Ryan and I that we used to watch all the fucking time. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm excited. Again, it's probably our last uh, Divergent Christmas month before we head back to Christmas horror or cursed Christmas or uh, Christmas classics because we. We, we love Christmas
2: stuff.
1: Yeah, uh, I, it feels it would feel very silly if we did a December that wasn't in some way Christmas themed. And yeah. so, while it is a little corny to do Die Hard movies in uh, December, uh, this is actually the least Christmassy your Christmas themes are gonna be for the run of the show, probably.
0: Yeah, I cannot imagine we decide to do something else. I mean, in the same way that we save up Christmas movies for the end of the year and then like like last year watched 31 new ones and other classics or something like that like uh bad news for not a fan of christmas movies uh i it's, it's, as long as we have a show and there's still christmas movies we'll probably do it yeah but absolutely yes. uh yeah so we'll see you next week with die hard uh die hard a normal amount no vengeance and doesn't care if you live free or die hard. Just plain old fashion die hard. Yeah. Hey, Aaron. Did you know did you know something? That you like ending stuff with a question to end the show? There's
2: a kiss at the end of the podcast. More precious than a pot of gold. Good night. See you And when the veil lifted, and the fairy tales have all been told. There's a kiss at the end of the rainbow, more precious than a pot of gold. My sweet